0: as usual, on a walk. This time, the old lady is with me, my 16-year-old who can barely keep up and refuses to die. <clears throat> and I'm doing some continuing education work, as I always do. I continue to study and keep current with both spiritual practices and energetic practices, as well as psychology. I get very disappointed in people who, once they get their degree, stop learning. I've met a lot of doctors like that and a lot of veterinarians like that, and I refuse to work with those people because they're now kind of fat and lazy. Instead of being on top of things, I expect someone I go to to know more than I do in a field. And those are the people I choose to work with. And personally, I love learning. So I was looking into uh, some coursework offered and papers published on low self-esteem, perfectionism, shyness, I can't do this, found out about a new series of research, maybe it's not that new, but new to me, called ACE, Adverse Childhood Experiences, and there's a scale where we can look at measurable outcomes including changes in brain neuroplasticity which has been measured with scans not just with oral tests that we can actually physically see the brain change or be constructed differently than normal with children who have experienced adversity in childhood and also how the brain changes literally physically when we heal One of the articles I was reading, I'm very happy, of course, because it agrees with what I'm already doing. (laughs) Of course I love it, (laughs) but it is validating and um, it's nice to have research to back up what one is already doing and very often practices we do are correct, but they don't have research behind them and sometimes the practices we do are not correct and research will show you why it's off base so I like that and kind of along the same lines this article is talking about how many people treat their feelings as facts and then they create a lot of problems for themselves So say for example I feel someone doesn't like me or I'm not likable then we're going to treat people as if they don't like us and in turn those changes in behavior and the changes in the energy field which of course mainstream psychology doesn't address will actually provoke people to not like you. So it's a hard choice to change that behavior when you suddenly realize this is my feeling I'm not going to act on my feelings. Another part of this process is looking at evidence. Something I always say to people here's how you feel. What's the evidence? People don't like you. What's the evidence? Therefore, since there's no evidence and you're making up a really harmful to yourself narrative, and now you're basing all that behavior on the narrative, and now It starts to produce results that verify your narrative, which is a horrible, cruel narrative. So when you start to instead choose to treat people as if they do like you until further prove them otherwise, it is helpful to look at the evidence first rather than take the fake it till you make it approach, which is advocated by 12-step program sometimes, and sometimes maybe that will be appropriate. But most of the time we need some evidence and authenticity behind our choices. So if we look at evidence and say, there's no evidence these people don't like me. I'm just interpreting their behavior this way because of my feelings. And if you're working with a therapist or a teacher or a healer, they can help you look at the behaviors you see and suggest other ways to interpret it as more neutral or even beneficial to you rather than your story of people don't like you. <clears throat> you go on to talk about the same process with shame. And John Bradshaw talks about this, although I I see that this concept seems to have disappeared from <laughs> a lot of New Age and Pop Psychology, and unfortunately, even the rewrite of the ACA program, Adult Children of Alcoholics program, has been rewritten in a way that I find disturbing, to say the least. (laughs) But there is healthy shame, and then there is self-betraying, self-destructing shame. So how do you know what to do with shame? Well, we look at something we've done, And we have shame when we are really afraid that if someone found out about this, they'd hate us. Then we have to look at, evidence-wise, did we really do something bad? And if so, we can start looking at the process of making amends. Or is the shame based on not fitting into some imagined norm? For example, Years ago being gay was shameful, but that didn't mean you were doing anything wrong. It means you were shamed for it, in which case there's no amends to be made. You have choices now. Accept who you are, definitely, and now you either hide who you are, or you start becoming an activist of some kind, whatever level you can. Maybe perhaps trying to pass legislation, all the way up to demonstrating, depending on your comfort level. So, finding out whether your shame is really not warranted. In other words, the shame is coming from cultural pressures, family pressures, religious pressures, etc. Now, it's still going to be very challenging. To make a decision about what to do with it. I know for myself, being among hostile populations, and being alone in hostile populations, I've often had to protect parts of my identity so that I would have even less attacks against me, both verbal and physical threats. And there's no shame in doing that as far as anybody is concerned. Even research says the same thing. However, if, say, I stole money out of someone's, say, wallet, I might feel horrible about that. And it might even be that originally, um, somehow, I thought that was okay because, let's say, I'm homeless, and therefore... Screw it, it's okay. I get to do that. I'm homeless, society isn't fair, etc. etc. Somewhere down the line, after some healing, maybe changing an outlook, maybe circumstances getting better for me, I might now be ashamed of that past. And then we can look at the facts of it. In which case, some people may decide. No, it was okay. It wasn't the best, but it's okay, and I'm not afraid to talk about it. I know for myself, uh, when I was dead busted broke, I sometimes, I think I was in my 20s, would go into a grocery store and eat food and then leave and not buy the food. Nothing I'm proud of today But it also doesn't cause me a great deal of grief, because looking at the evidence of my life at that time, I didn't see a whole lot of other options. Maybe there were, but I didn't see them. So healthy shame is something that helps us monitor our own behavior, enforce our own ethics and integrity, to hold ourselves accountable and responsible. Toxic shame, you know we always hear that toxic shame is questioning who we are. That's hard to to sort out sometimes, so instead I suggest the action of look at your behavior and look at where is the shame coming from. From societal values, family values, religious values. Is that where you learned it? or from your own personal integrity, being violated. This goes to yet another topic related to self-esteem and feelings and behaviors. Sometimes people will say to a therapist or a new age healer, I'm not good enough, and very often the response is, yes, you are. Well, in reality, sometimes you're not good enough. (laughs) You're just not. You're not very good as a therapist. You're not very good as a friend, etc. And there's nothing wrong with admitting that, saying that beating yourself up for it is not the best thing. So instead we switch to what would it take to be good enough? How do you get those skills or that practice under your belt? Maybe you need to back off a little and step down a bit and go back and learn some more basic skills but in this culture we have a lot of pressure you know just do it no fear and these exceptional cases of somebody who never went to school and started you know apple in their garage or walked into an empty office and claimed they're a producer like Steven Spielberg. Well, yes, there are exceptional cases, and if you're one of them, then you won't be struggling with the question, I'm not good enough. That question doesn't even come into your mind. So if it does come into your mind, there's a good chance that you are lacking skills. And again, we go to evidence. It may turn out, however, that This is a shame-based feeling. And once again, we can look to evidence to straighten it out. Straightening it out in your head is one part. The second part, no matter what you're doing, what you're healing, what you're confronting, you're going to have to change behaviors. And that is puke city for most people, especially the first few times. Getting healthy always means taking baby steps and trying new behaviors. Some of them will work. Some of them may not work. Some of them may work. Some of them you may feel don't work. And no matter what you do, when you change your behaviors, every single relationship around you is going to change as well. So it's going to be a little bit messy. Kind of like firing a, the cue ball into the setup. Of the pool balls or billiards. The balls are going to go in every single direction and that can be really scary and very hard to do by yourself in the beginning and after a while you will get used to doing that as you continue to grow and evolve throughout your life rather than hide and repress. But in the beginning I would not suggest doing it alone. You need some feedback. You need a touchstone. You need kind of a base of reality checks when changing new behaviors. And you do little tiny changes at first. Sometimes people jump into big changes. They can handle it. When you change behavior, your relationships change And that doubles back and even changes you. Like when you first say no to someone, maybe they blow up, maybe they walk away, maybe they get pissed. And then they come back, and the relationship is different, better. It's so validating. But that whole process can take a few days, a few weeks, a few months, sometimes a year. I've even had it go up to 12 years. I actually have a new record of somebody who called me after 30 years to say everything that happened was necessary and great and wonderful, even though at the time they were really pissed off. So having either someone to work with or you might be strong enough to get through some of these baby behavioral changes yourself in the beginning, very important. Another part that was talked about in the research is self-talk, and we can also put this under the labels of self-parenting in our child work because the self-talk is always the child in us and the adult in us child in us that is needy, and has feelings, and is scared, but also likes to have fun, sometimes doesn't think of the consequences of having fun, because they're a child. And then the grown-up in us, that very often in the beginning is very dysfunctional, by the way. If we've been parented in a lousy way to begin with, our inner self-talk is gonna suck. (laughs) And it takes a few years to unwind inner self-talk. It's not a quick process by the time people realize that may be indeed a problem. They're usually at least around 20, which means two decades of crappy programming. Parents, culture, religion, and finally they've learned it themselves so they do it to themselves. So the research indicates that once you become aware of self-talk, you want to own it. <laughs> like, I don't want to say that to myself. That's bullshit. So you can learn to start asking yourself questions like, okay, you feel that way. You're telling yourself this story. What's the evidence? There you go. Self parenting. Learning to distinguish between feelings and behaviors and thoughts. So the evidence is that with self talk, is more powerful when you talk in the second person. In other words, instead of saying, I love myself, or I am a great person, you use your first name. Joanne, you are the best person. This has a larger impact on brain chemistry. I can understand why. I don't think there's clear research on the why of this. But self-talk was programmed into us by another voice. In other words, healthy children with great parents have great self-talk. They boost themselves up. They ask the right questions. They give themselves compliments and encouragement. So the voice is coming from the outside. So correcting dysfunctional, self-betraying, nasty self-talk works better with using your name. Again, it goes back to self-parenting, like having this wonderful parent inside of you saying, Joanne, you screwed up, but it's so little, and everything else you've done is great, so we can fix this, it's fine, we're good, let's go have a walk in the park. Really good thing to think about using. So, a quick recap of tools. Look for evidence. Find out if you're listening to your feelings or the evidence. Find out if what you're feeling is actually true or if you're making up a story about it and the evidence says otherwise. If your feelings are true then you can make decisions about new behaviors, how you want to proceed, learn new skills, make amends, end a friendship, start a friendship. Start catching your self-talk. And when you catch it, you wouldn't talk to a friend like that, or even your dog or cat like that. Restructure your self-talk. It'll feel a little weird at first. New behaviors always do, so you may feel a little bit cuckoo having a conversation with you. I often suggest doing it out loud at first. Not when someone can hear you, of course. You can go to the car, the bathroom a walk around the block, your bedroom, very often having a large stuffed animal and talking to that animal as if it was you. You talk to your bear, we're okay, it was a mistake, but it's okay, we can correct it tomorrow. You've been doing a great job. Everybody makes a mistake, probably no one even noticed but you. But we'll find out in the meantime. Joanne, I love you. So externalizing it like that can be so helpful because the criticism, the horrible self-talk, the adverse experiences of childhood came from the outside in. So it makes absolute sense that when we're starting to correct this, we have to kind of go back to how it was sourced in the first place, from the outside. So who's the outside in this case? Is my healthy self, my loving self, my caring self, talking and nurturing my wounded self. They're not really external, but to break it down like that helps the brain and neuroplasticity reshape itself because we're addressing similar neural pathways external to internal producing an emotion. I'm going to keep reading and I'm going to keep you posted. Okay so more information <clears throat> on um, healing, moving ourselves forward. Mm. Along the lines of this, by the way, I just ran into a, a really lovely book that I don't agree with everything, but it kind of gives you the other extreme of how we feel our feelings and we treat our feelings as real and we nurture our feelings and we go way, way down that path. And then there's kind of the other side of get over it. (laughs) So it's kind of a combination of both as far as I'm concerned. And this book is called F-U-C-K, that word, Your Feelings. I'm not sure if Anchor would allow me to curse, so I'm going to be a little careful here. You might want to listen to it or read it. Uh, I just found it written by a clinical uh, psychologist. might be a psychiatrist even. I'm not sure. Um, but really concrete suggestions, and that's kind of what I want to address a little bit here, too, in terms of changing behaviors, etc. So, one of the toxic thoughts that people have is that they're not good enough. And how do we get to the evidence of that? Because when we go to evidence, we can begin to unwind that self-talk. The first question is to ask, is according to who? Not good enough according to who? Instagram? Facebook? um, A toxic friend or lover? So the questions you can go to when you're struggling with, I'm not good enough, is asking, who am I serving? Because we're trying to be good enough for something to serve a community or we're on a mission of some kind. Then you can start to look at, let's say, it's about your looks. For some reason, you've decided you're a loser because your looks are awful. If we look at according to what community and what's my mission, like is my mission to look like a Barbie doll or Arnold Schwarzenegger or a Ken doll, you'll find out, no, that's not really true. And then if you look at who do you want your community to be, are you serving a community community? that you want to be good enough for, that is hyper-concerned with superficial looks and bizarre standards that are trendy right now, this can take you into evidence, asking those kind of questions. You have to catch the self-talk first and then try not to spin out and then remember to go to evidence. Another toxic self-talk theme is perfectionism. And one of the great places to go with that is, is it good enough? Most of life is good enough, and it's sustainable, and it's working. It doesn't have to be perfect. And once again, we're looking at Perfect according to whose standards. You can then, in terms of examining evidence, imagine if you did something perfect, whatever you're beating yourself up about. Imagine each perfect detail. And as you do that, notice how it feels. Do you feel better? Or do you feel more wound up, more cuckoo, more anxious, etc. When we really start to look at what it would take to be perfect according to our thought about something, you pretty much won't want to live like that. You will find out it's an impossible lifestyle. So if we look at the evidence of your perfection, you'll see how unrealistic that is and how it is showing up in your body. So if we go to our own values, both for I'm not good enough and perfectionism. Usually when we're going to perfectionism, we're trying to impress someone besides ourselves. We're trying to win love or approval or validation. And we know that perfectionism never wins that, at least not for very long. In other words, okay, you were perfect then, but what about now? So asking yourself the right questions and beginning to look at the details of what you're thinking and how that would actually play out and whose standards you are kowtowing for can help you to gather viable evidence, facts, and even Evidential feelings, in other words, if I performed perfectly, how would that change my feelings? You can also give yourself a compliment in saying, I'm not perfect, but I did a really good job. So that you confront your perfectionism instead of beating yourself up. You catch that self-talk and have a little talk with yourself, self-talk again. I like what I did. Here's what I did that was right, and here's some of the things that, yeah, maybe I could do better next time, maybe not, but all in all, it's okay, it's good. What I did, there was plenty of good stuff there. A lot of reaction to perfectionism and I'm not good enough has to do with shame. And shame can come out of a giant collection of events. It's not necessarily from specific events of abuse. It can come out of benign neglect, even a working parent who's not home enough, is too tired, etc. But perfectionism and I'm not good enough and what's wrong with me is definitely shamed-based. Some of the practice you can do to bust shame and bust perfectionism. Again, these are going to be changes in behavior, so they're going to be scary. Practice making mistakes on purpose so that you get used to making mistakes. Go um, ice skating and fall down. Try to knit and screw it up. (laughs) And start having fun with your screw-ups and get used to making mistakes and get used to it being fun and get used to anticipating that you're going to make mistakes. One of the things I always suggest to people who have a hard time talking because of trauma, they tend to freeze up or dissociate, is go to Toastmasters Club. Start learning how to make mistakes in talking. Start learning that not everything you say has to be perfect or huge or traumatizing, etc. But a lot of people find going to Toastmasters absolutely terrifying. Well, find another place to speak. Go to a 12 step meeting. Go to a church group if you're religious. Find a way to challenge yourself with a new behavior. Some other things that you can do for shame busting exercises. In other words, if I'm not perfect, I'm horrible. And I'm afraid to be around other people because I'm gonna screw up. I'm not good enough. All of this is shame. Try doing some shame busting exercises. Dress funny. Um, for a year or two, I walked around with a stuffed animal. She was in my car. I took her into restaurants. I was, um, I would say, close to 40. <laughs> and instead of people freaking out at me, everybody laughed and treated me differently and i became less mm, reluctant to practice self-care out in public because this was part of self-care so i became more and more comfortable with saying no to people and I can't spend time doing this. And no, I don't want to drink a bottle of wine. And no, I don't want to be around you if you're getting high. And no, I don't want to visit the family unless I have a private room, etc. You can try other things. Singing on the street. Put headphones in. Sing and dance as you walk down the street. Yell. Make mistakes. Challenge yourself to do these things because also doing this, it puts you in control. In other words, you are on purpose making mistakes. You are on purpose practicing not being perfect. You are on purpose learning to go for sufficient instead of perfection. Here's a really good exercise. Try to take a perfect shower. Notice how much you enjoy it, which will probably be not at all. Learn to take a shower that is sufficient and enjoyable. But seriously, first try to take a perfect shower and see how much you drive yourself absolutely crazy. Another great practice, go for job interviews and get rejected. It's something I used to teach as a professor to get people who were going to college who had never had any kind of meaningful work. They've been flipping burgers or, you know, working as a janitor somewhere and they weren't happy with that. And now they have an education and they really want a job in their field. I would always suggest they start applying for every single job so they could, in a way, go through desensitization therapy of getting used to interviewing and not getting jobs and not caring about it. So that by the time the real interviews started to come around, they would be relaxed about doing their best and relaxed about getting the job or not getting the job. So the interviews I would tell them to go to were out of their career field. Go for a a cleaning job, go for a McDonald's job, go for a warehouse job. So by the time you go for an IT job, or you're going for a physical therapist or nurse practitioner, you are so comfortable with yourself in interviews, and you are so comfortable with the idea that the right job will find you, so rejection isn't personal. Again, these are all changes in behavior. So it takes thought, it takes making a plan, and then it takes carrying out a plan. Which brings me to one final point, which is when you're doing changes of behavior, it is extremely important to have a mentor or someone to go to who will model for you a different kind of relationship that you have ever had and not just model it for you themselves in other words you're not watching how they behave you get to actually participate in a relationship where there is no shaming where there is a lot of laughter about all the screw-ups in new behavior where there is detachment where there is forgiveness when you do something vile or horrifying and, There's a person there that holds boundaries and also says, but yeah, it's okay. You did that. And and yes, we're going to have some boundaries about that. There's no punishment. There's no resentment. There's no holding you to it. Like this is who you are forever. It's just what's going on now. So when you work with someone, we could actually say that the relationship of the person you're working with is in fact the cure that is The place where you solidify the new changes in behavior that you've been trying on your own and sharing them with someone else who's not going to give you the old toxic responses, which means choose your helper, your mentor, your teacher very carefully as so many people go into the field of helping as a way to not deal with their own issues. We know this for a fact. We know this in psychology. We know it in spirituality. One last thing that we know from research also is that most of society is suffering from low-level chronic inflammation, from horrible diet and exposure to chemicals, be it in makeup, shampoo, laundry, soap, cleaners around the house, etc. We know that inflammation affects, badly affects neuroplasticity. What does this mean in plain English? If your body is toxic, you will have inflammation. And inflammation, it won't necessarily be like swollen ankles or swollen knuckles it will be something that you don't feel, but it is measurable with a series of tests, et cetera. But for now, let's just take the research that says toxins produce low chronic inflammation, like having a tooth abscess. Now you have a low level infection that is absolutely draining your system and making you susceptible not only to illnesses, but also mood disorders. Inflammation affects your ability to connect both to yourself, to other people, and therefore also to source. So if you are having trouble changing behavior and trying new behaviors and getting in touch with what happened with those new behaviors, you might be swimming against the current of having a toxic body. Can you still proceed? Yes, you can. It'll be harder and slower. And it may just be that's the way it has to be for now, especially people on a poverty level can't eat right, can't afford green products, et cetera. So it's something you'll need to think about and look at and take it into account. Kind of like, let's say that you're in a wheelchair that affects how you can do certain things can they still be done most of them yes just done differently just done a little harder which means you're going to have to really get off your perfectionism and really get into what is working what is sufficient and going back to whenever you get cuckoo perfectionistic go back and take another perfect shower see how that goes to remind yourself Perfection is in the eye of the person who is inventing it and that perfectionism and not good enough and the shame around that always comes from when you're measuring yourself by someone else's standards. When you're measuring yourself by your own standards, you don't use that language. You just say things like, damn it, I could do better. I'm going to do better next time. No shame there. Hopefully, you'll start to practice some of these things. Please remember, it's near impossible to do this work alone. If you have no money, go to Codependents Anonymous, Adult Children of Alcoholics, though I would look for a group that sticks to the old version of the 12 Steps, not the new one by Tony A. I find that very dysfunctional, just my opinion. Go to a support group. Find... A therapist. Make sure you interview your therapist so that you feel they are competent and strong and they have worked on themselves. Sometimes you're very lucky to have a best friend and you can do some of this work with a best friend. Perhaps they're in a 12-step program or they're a counselor and they're your friend and they don't mind helping you out for a while. But be sure to ask and set boundaries around that. But do remember that somewhere down the line, you're going to have to have a healthy relationship with someone in order to build up new neural pathways in your brain that support a healthy relationship because the old pathways will continue to draw you down that dirt road because those are the roads you're used to going down. So, as you break those patterns and build new roads in your brain, the more you practice, the more it gets reinforced, the quicker, better, and stronger that restructuring becomes. I hope all this helps. Want some private work? Contact me. Come to classes and keep going on your journey. Don't give up. And check out that book. It's funny. It's irreverent. And what doesn't work for you, just leave it. But I think there's a lot of great suggestions in it. Adios for now. Journey on.